This is Darrell Alia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 42. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7 Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobsher, the cash flow ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place mr hollywood himself presents the before the millions podcast and now your host deray olalaye hey what's up what's going on btm listeners we're back we're back for another installment back for another episode another week of the before the millions podcast now you may hear a lot of things in the background during this intro I see a helicopter right now. I've seen about six ambulances in the past five minutes, and it's very windy here. Now, where am I? I am in downtown Los Angeles, and I am on vacation with two of my very best friends. And what's crazy is I told myself I would do no work on this trip. I purposely did not bring my MacBook. I didn't bring any of my mics, and I still find myself on my phone doing tons of work, borrowing headphones so I can talk to you guys, and I can record this podcast for you guys to make sure that you guys are set for this week. This week, we're interviewing Sep Bacon. Sep is an amazing investor, guys. And me and Sep, we recently met, I think last October in Dallas, Texas at a conference. And I knew that I wanted him on the show. Sep has a wealth of knowledge, guys. And I can't wait for him to really dive into his story and share it with you guys. You know, one of the things we really cover when it comes to passive real estate investing, when it comes to passive income, when it comes to rental properties, you know, a lot of people think that real estate is not passive. And that is true. Real estate is hard work and it's not passive. And, you know, there are many real estate business models that you follow that definitely will not ever be passive no matter what you do. But there are models that can and will be passive depending on how you structure them. And one of the best models for passive, actual passive real estate income is rental real estate. And, you know, that's our bread and butter. So we look for cash flow and we look for cash flow. We look for passive cash flow, uh, which reminds me, join our group, our Facebook group. Passive cash flow lifestyle. Join that group. And the way to get there is before the millions.com slash group. But, anyways, so we look for passive investments. And when it comes to rental property, the best way to make rental property a passive investment is to have a property manager, is to have a property management company or a property management team. That's the best way to make your, your, your investment passive. Now, you still have to manage the manager. There's no such thing as a truly 100% passive investment. Or your business is probably going to go down the drain. But this is as passive as it gets, especially if you hire the right team. And that's a key emphasis on the right team. If you hire the wrong team, then your your business will be anything but passive. In fact, it may cause more problems than you can ever imagine. So 
and Sepp is a great example of that. You know, he's going to walk us through quite a few stories. Sepp has been through numerous property managers, numerous property management companies. So when I say Sepp has a good footing on what to look for in a property management team and a property management company, I kid you not, guys. So without any further ado, guys, I kind of want to just jump right in, guys. I'm super excited. Sepp has a wealth of knowledge. He's going to teach us how to find the right property management company for our business so that we can create passive cash flow. That's the name of the game, guys. So let, let's get straight to the show, guys, and I'll see you on the other side. DeRay's Tip of the Week. Okay, so here's the tip of the week, guys. You know, when it comes to rental real estate and building up your portfolio and actually just kind of getting started, especially with a full-time job, and I, actually, I think this goes for any business, not just real estate. And so you can apply this anywhere in any business that you have or any business that you're in. But I often get this reason that Hey, Dre, I, I really wish I can do this, but I don't have the time. So let's let's talk about how to have more time to do the things that you want. Let's talk about where you're going to get that time from. And this is a, a quick method that I use, and I definitely suggest that you use in your life to create more time. Because you truly, you always truly have time for the things that you want. Or better said, you tr- you always have time for the things that you truly want. And that... That's true, guys. If you think about everything that you do in your life, if you think about things that you run out of time for and things that you actually do, you actually always have exact the exact amount of time for everything that you truly want and desire in your life. And, you know, it's one of those profound statements that once you think about it, it's just like, wow, I really do. But if you feel like you don't, I have a, I have a trick, I have a method for you to gain more of your time back. So this is what you're going to do. And it's called delete, automate, delegate. You're either going, you're either going to delete the task, meaning... You're going to totally remove the task. If you have a task that is not gearing you towards your goal of real estate investing, is not actually actively helping you in, in the department that you're looking to grow in, delete that task. We need to stop doing tasks that are not actually getting us close to our goals. A lot of people like to get ready to get ready. You know, well, let me clean up my desk before I actually start doing the work I need to do. And, you know, well, I've just cleaned up my desk, but I like to I like to actually do my work only in the morning. So I'll wait until tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes, you're like, well, you know, today I have I have I have to go to the gym and I have to do this and I have to do that. So it's going to have to wait until tomorrow morning. And things like that keep, keep happening. So we need to delete, 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 delete. Do the most important thing first every single day. So delete things that we can automate. I mean, we live in the, in the best times right now. Everything is getting automated. It's so easy to automate stuff. These apps are coming out and it's amazing. If you're not automating at this time, you need to start automating some of the tasks that, that you frequently manually do. And that'll eliminate at least 20 or 30% of the tasks. So if you can delete a few tasks that, that are meaningless and frivolous, if you can automate a few of those. And then last but not least, if you can delegate tasks that are not quite pushing the needle, so if you're doing admin tasks and you're, you feel like you're worth, you know, $200 an hour or whatever the case may be, you're doing an admin task that's worth $50 an hour or $10 an hour, uh, delegate that out. Delegate that out so that you're no longer doing $10 per hour tasks and you can focus on doing those $200 per hour tasks or $2,000 per hour tasks. So delegate that out. So those are the big three, guys. If you can delete, delegate, and automate or delete, automate, and delegate then you you have a surefire way system of being more productive, having more of your time, controlling more of your time and investing more of your time in the things that, that truly matter. Being a real estate investor, you know, building up your portfolio. And I think that's the key, guys. I think that's the key. So that's the tip of the week for this, guys. Delete, delegate and automate. All right, guys, let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. 
Excited today, guys. Very, very excited. On today's show, we are interviewing the man himself, Mr. Sepp Bakam. Sepp, how's it going? Good, Doray. How are you? Doing pretty well. I'm excited to get into your story. Excited to learn your Before the Millions path. Sepp is a former electrical engineer, and uh, Sepp started investing in 2010 and retired at the age of 21. Sepp is now a full-time professional real estate investor. And we'll talk about how Sepp can say that he's he's retired, but he's also a full-time real estate investor at the same time. We'll talk about that. Sepp currently owns nine multifamily properties, an office building, and more than 120 houses in five states. Sepp currently resides in Orange County, California. Sepp, are you in Orange County right now? I am. Amazing. How's the weather out there? It's a lot harder than I would have expected it to be for January. So it still feels like summertime. And yeah, I'm complaining. <laughs> oh, oh, I, I don't hear a lot of people complain about weather out there, but okay. Seth, okay. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just playing, but um, all jokes aside. So let's dive into your story, Seth. I'm excited, excited to get into it. Let's, let's take it back. Let's hop in the time machine and let's talk about your, your time in corporate America. I think I want to, I want to start there. I don't even want to go back to college. I want to talk about your time in corporate America and Kind of a kind of kind of what, what what your daily routine was and how you were discontent with that because obviously you, you are no longer uh, in the corporate world so kind of talk about that yeah and I I think that's a kind of a good I mean you had a you had a good understanding as far as what what it was like I kind of and I, I remember vividly because it was it was not where I thought it would be a lot of the motivation for me to get through college because I I wasn't an A student and electrical engineering was a lot of physics and calculus and it was grueling but I was like okay. If I can get through this, it's going to be easy, not easy, but it's going to be enjoyable after college. I'll be able to to make a difference and to be able to go and engineer some cool robots or solutions for these companies. But when I got into the rat race, it was not like what I thought. It was not like working with uh, Elon Musk or working on these really cool projects. It was it was exactly like the movie Office Space. And the movie is kind of old now. It's probably about 20 years old. But it's I think it was just, it was kind of, kind of scary how accurate it was because it wasn't just like there's one company out there that's like that. I, I kind of got the notion that a lot of companies have that. It's where, where the employees are kind of checked out. They're, they're just going there to work their 40 hours. They don't really have, they're not really there to, to live their, their life's purpose. I mean, it's just, it's there to cover the mortgage. It's there because they're getting a paycheck to live for the weekend. And I kind of saw earlier on that if I stayed there, if I stayed on that path, I would be like, you know, a lot of my my coworkers who were there for 10, 20, 30 years uh, before me. And most of them, not all, but most of them kind of, they look at their past as if, well, if, if I could have done things differently, if I had the opportunity to do things differently, I would have, I wouldn't have stayed at this company much longer. So I kind of killed my motivation, but I was still, I was still, you know, try hard in the, in the jobs, but I, I couldn't, really control my destiny when there's a recession and, you know, when there's layoffs or uh, when, you know, if a company loses a big customer, it was just kind of like, we're, we're either going to add significant value to the company or we're not. So it's just kind of like a, it's, it's, it's almost binary. I mean, from the company's perspective, there's not really any type of, you know, they're, they're not there for our goals. The company is there for their own goals as they should be. But I, I just didn't like not being in control of my destiny. So it was kind of like a, a wake-up call when I got exposed to the, the Robert Kiyosaki books because then I, I saw that, okay, this is a potential solution for me to kind of take control of my destiny and not have to go and work with these you know, miserable bosses or you know, this, these coworkers that are just complaining all the time. And it's just a really negative environment. So it, it, it just, you know, the Kiyosaki books kind of opened up a lot of doors for me. 
How long were you in school, Seth? Switch majors a couple times, so longer than I longer than I should have been, longer than it took. I think it was uh, about six and a half years, six and a half, seven years. I was going for my uh, bachelor's, and I was doing my master's, which I dropped out of my master's just to focus on the real estate company. Was there a gap between um, undergrad and grad? There was, yeah. So I was working, I think it was maybe for six months when maybe it was about, uh, I'm sorry, about a, a year. And so I was working the entire time and basically I saw the master's, the, the graduate school as as a solution to help me do more for the company and potentially get, get a higher paycheck. Got you. Here's my question. You were in school for six and a half, seven years. And for six and a half, seven years, your motivation for going to school, your motivation for being in school, your motivation for, for graduating from undergrad, your motivation for going to grad school, all of your motivation for, for, for a whole seven years were to go on and become this corporate America worker and this schooling, whether it was the skill set or it was the certificate, whatever it was, but this this schooling was what was going to be able to provide that for you. Is that correct? Correct. So you spent seven years of your life. Almost, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty long time. And, you know, I, I want to really put this in perspective for, for listeners who are on the fence and listeners who, who are in a position that you, you may have been in a while back, because we're often of the mindset I put all this hard work and effort into, into this thing right here. I put all this hard work and effort into school. This school is supposed to take me on to be an engineer. And I at least want to be able to reap the benefits of all those years of schooling before I ever even think about doing anything else. And a lot of us have that mentality. Step, you were in school for seven years and not even, I mean, how long was it before you picked up Rich Dad Poor Dad after you started to work? Working. It was totally by luck. Probably it was about a, a year and a half, about, about a year and a half after I started working. Tell, tell us that story. How, how did you come across that book? Well, I, I think part of it is the mindset because I, I wasn't an avid reader. I think being perfectly honest, I probably read three books in my entire life all before that besides textbooks. Uh, I just, I didn't really care about reading. I didn't, I didn't even, I think podcasts had just started at the time. They weren't that popular, but kind of where I was at at the time was there was, you know, I was, I was working this job and I, I would have goals. Like I want to buy a house. I want to finally get a new car. I want to go travel. And I would look at my paycheck after expenses, after taxes, and I would have to cross out the goals that I had pre rich dad, poor dad. So this is all before I read the book. Then just by chance, you know, a friend of mine, you know, she was asking, what are you doing? Where do you want to go? And I said, well, I'm going for my master's. Eventually I'd like to start my own company, but I think I have to get like an MBA for that. So maybe I'll go back to school for that. And maybe that's 12 years later and, and a bunch of debt. And then she had recommended, you know, have you ever heard of uh, Robert Kiyosaki or, you know, Rich Dad Poor Dad? And I said I hadn't. And she said, well, he's got this new book at the time. This is 2009. Uh, this new book called Conspiracy of the Rich. And I was like, that's kind of a funky title. I mean, well, tell me a little more about it. She's like, well, I, I could kind of, there's a lot of concepts in the book, but the main thing is that it talks about the Federal Reserve. And I remember the Federal Reserve is always written on these dollar bills, but of course we don't learn anything about it in school. And she's like, yeah, the Federal Reserve is neither federal nor a reserve bank. And that was kind of like the, the I mean, I, I had to just pause and think about that for a minute. It was almost like the Morpheus and Matrix moment <laughs> where he's, he's given Neo the, the blue pill or the, the red pill. I was like, why, why didn't we get told about that? Like it's, it's Federal Reserve and I mean, that, so that just kind of sparked a, a question. And then she's like, yeah, and there's this, you know, thing called inflation and it happens to all of us. So it, it kind of put me onto a, a path of finding more about that. It's because it didn't really make sense for me to keep chasing these paychecks 
if there's this thing called inflation that is devaluing my my time basically because if i'm trading my time for money in my job and i'm investing all this you know 40 hours or 50 hours a week it's kind of like a on a financial side of it it's kind of depreciating slowly over time and especially if i can't adjust my my paycheck for the inflation rate so that that was kind of how that that was kind of what motivated me to read the book and then when i when i read that book conspiracy of the rich yeah it just it changed everything cuz part of the book is it talks a lot about inflation it talks about what got us into the the 2008 recession or you know the global financial crisis but i one of the the key points i thought was that the book links real estate investing as a solution to that inflation because it shows that savings, you know, a savings account is not going to hedge us against inflation. Jobs are not going to hedge us against inflation, especially even though the, the numbers go up, the actual wage growth, I think I read somewhere that it's, it's been stagnant since like 1970s and, and declining, unfortunately, for, for a lot of America. But when you have assets, you have real assets that are hedges against inflation, gold, silver, you know, if you have control over business or real estate, then the more real estate we have or can control, the the more inflation can actually help us, not help, but you know, it'll, it'll basically make the, the worth of those assets go up over time and those assets keep up with the inflation rate. So I kind of saw it as that's, that's a way for me to get onto a lifeboat so I'm not just drowning in the, in the ocean. I love that. That's amazing. One thing I, I want to touch on is the fact that you were in corporate America and you were there for, for over a year and you started feeling these thoughts that you started feeling these feelings that we all have, have experienced, you know, these feelings of I have to cross out my goals this month because, you know, I have to I have to cover my bills and expenses and I have to cover my student loans. And month over month, you're not re- really able to achieve any of your goals and you find yourself more and more in debt. And what's crazy is just like anybody else, I mean, we all do this. It's crazy. But what's crazy is you looked to a solution and your solution was, was grad school. So your, your solution was to get yourself into more debt, to be even more uh, uncontent with a job that you were uh, apparently dissatisfied with. And I think that it's a cycle that we, we all fall victim to. And then, you know, you go to grad school and now you're in more debt. You get, you're getting paid more, but you're in more debt. And kind of, you're kind of just repeating the same cycle. Along, along the same lines you talked about with inflation, like, yes, you're getting paid more as a dollar amount, but if that, that wage is not increasing with the same rate that inflation is increasing, then, I mean, getting paid more with, with a specific dollar number, a dollar amount, that doesn't really mean anything. I mean, the, the value of that dollar is cheaper. So right. you, you found yourself in, the, in this cycle. And by happenstance, you came across this, this book. You came across Robert Kiyosaki's book, and it kind of changed your perspective. It changed your world. So what was the first thing you did after that to, to kind of act on, act on what you just learned? I got so excited reading the book and I started talking to, I started talking to friends and family about it and, uh, and everyone just thought I was crazy. It's like, you're, you're, you know, Looney Tune. Inflation, I mean, it's, inflation happened, they would say people who, who were alive at the time, they said inflation happened in the 1970s, it happened in the 1980s, you know, interest rates are so low right now, how could there be any inflation? And it, and I don't know how to answer that. I don't know how to respond to it because it's like, that's a good point. So if, if inflation is higher, then why is it that the, the price of these headphones gets cheaper over time? Why is it this laptop gets cheaper over time? And then I read more of the Kiyosaki books. I read the other books that he suggested. I started getting to the podcast. I came across another great book, uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin, which is, I, I think it's like the Bible of the, the Federal Reserve. And it goes into more detail. And just kind of talks about how inflation, it doesn't happen uniformly, but as the Federal Reserve 
keeps printing more and more money, it, it, it kind of goes into some buckets a little bit more than others. So like we're seeing food prices going up. We don't see the price of an iPad going up. It goes down, right? Because as there's more and more iPads being sold, it becomes cheaper and cheaper for Apple to mass produce them. And you know, the, the prices go down, but rents keep going up, especially over here in Orange County. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, what, what a one bedroom apartment rents for over here compared to the rest of the country. You go down to the to oil, to raw commodities. I mean, everything is, is more and more cheaper. You can't, buy, you can't buy a stud for 25 cents like you could back in the 1970s anymore. It's the same wood. It's just the value of the dollar has, has basically gone down significantly ever since then. So, and I don't claim to be an expert. I'm not an economist on this, but I just saw this as, okay, if this is, if this is what's going to happen and this is how history has gone, then it's likely that that trend is going to continue on, especially with our national debt, the way it's going. So I got to get into real estate investing. Originally, the, my, my thought was I got to get into real estate investing to protect myself. And then as I started getting into it, I was like, okay, now I got to actually get into this and teach others and help others do the same because I see them as needing the same protection. That's amazing. And just kind of from your point of view, why would you say real estate invest is an inflationary hedge? Great question. So with the, the let's just use the house for example right so we have we have the house we have the concrete that goes to support the foundation we have the the wood that goes inside of the walls we have the glass for the windows we have if the house has granite countertops or formica whatever it is we have the stainless steel appliances or whatever appliances the light fixtures the faucets all the plumbing the copper that goes into the plumbing the oil that was used to make the tar that goes on the roof like all of these are are basically raw commodities and they don't get cheaper over time because, I mean, there's, there's some efficiencies that can happen. Maybe instead of using like granite, you can go with Formica, right? But it's, you can't pay someone $2 an hour to go install that Formica cabinet. $2 an hour is a really good wage back in 1950s or 1960s, right? So building a house back then, it can be done a lot cheaper. But just with what's happened with inflation, it, you can't build that same house with all the same materials, even if it's the exact same house, it, you can't build it for $10,000 or $15,000. So part of it is, it, it's not 100% inflation, what, what dictates the, the property value, but a good part of it is. So there's, it's basically what, what is above the ground. And in, in California, we have the, the land value, which tends to be pretty, pretty high priced. So that's, that's basically on the market, like what people are willing to pay for the land. But that, that same house in another state, I mean, probably costs $100,000 to build. With the same house 50 years ago, probably costs $15,000 to build, $10,000 to build. So it's, it's, it's just all, it's a collection of raw commodities. That's kind of how I look at it. I love that. And also from the rent side of things, you know, when you're in an inflationary period and when inflation is going up, how, how does that affect rents? Yeah. And that's, that's the other thing that Kiyosaki talks about in his books is that it's it generally the rents keep up with inflation. So it's, it's kind of interesting looking at the markets that crashed in 2008, 2009, 2010, and seeing the relation between the property value and the rent. The property values could go down 50%, for example, but even in like the, the markets that suffered the most, Las Vegas, Phoenix, you know, parts of California, the rents did not decline 50%. They, they did take a hit, but it, it didn't go down by half. And maybe it went down by 10%, 20%, maybe 25% at the extreme example. A lot of markets, the value of the, the property can go down, but the rent can stay flat or it can take a small decrease or, or still even go up. So even, I mean, the, the rents compared to today, like let's say house, house there's, there's a lot of talk about how house prices have recovered in, in a, lot, a lot of the markets, not all markets, but a lot of the markets. 
even if the prices have recovered, the rents tend to be even higher than where they are before. So it's, that's kind of like a general example. I mean, it's, it's market specific, but generally the rent is a hedge against inflation given, given all of those, those examples. I love that. I love that you touched on that because it's funny when we talk about real estate investing, we talk about different types of real estate and we talk, we talk about different ways to make money in real estate. We talk about fixing and flipping. We talk about having rental properties. We talk about having office buildings. We talk about buying raw land and things of that nature. When it comes to having cash flowing, buy and hold assets that we use to facilitate our lifestyle, we, as much as we do care about the fluctuation sometimes of, of, the, of the value of the property, we more so care about the cash flow of the property. So, you know, I often like to, I like to allude to the fact that as a long-term buy and hold investor, if you buy a, if you buy a home that's worth, you know, $200,000 and you're living off of the cash flow of that home, then if the value of that goes down in a crash or whatever, and your, your, your plan is to be a long-term buy and hold investor and to live off the cash flow and the cash flow doesn't move and the cash flow may in fact increase because there are business models such as B and C class apartments in which, you know, during a recession, you possibly can see rent increases because people are moving, uh, first off, all development is stopping. Second off, people are moving out of class A housing because they feel things are not going as good as they may have been going at work and things like that. So people are moving into more economically efficient housing, B and C class apartments. So there are, there are definitely safe hedges against uh, those those bad times and rental property is is one I, I like to put at the top of the list and you, you you covered it perfectly you know you talk about if the value of your house was to drop by 50 percent if you're a long-term buy and hold investor as much as they may, that may scare you you may just need to stick it through if if you see that your, your rents are stable so that's amazing advice so let's kind of go down your the story uh the down your path a little bit further. So you decided that you wanted to, to, to dive into the real estate room. What was the first piece of property that you purchased? Yeah, it was actually two properties. It was uh, uh, two turnkey pro- properties from a turnkey provider and it was two fourplexes. So I, I started out with multifamily for a lot of the reasons that you were talking about. And this was back in 2010, because even as the prices were going down, I saw, hey, with these rents the way they are, it's these multifamily properties still cash flow. And this, this should be a good investment as long as we can just mitigate the expenses, control the expenses and manage the income. And I, I went into it thinking that I'd have cash flow from day one because the turnkey provider basically sold it as it, the property is already taken care of. It's nice and clean. I went and saw the property. They said, if you ever have any issues, you can call us after you buy it and we'll take care of you. We even have a, a professional management company that you can take on. But I didn't have anyone at the time to ask for feedback of. I mean, I everyone that I asked for feedback was saying, don't go out of state. You know, don't, why are you living in California, investing in, in Phoenix? Just go buy an overpriced house over here that doesn't cash flow because it's less risk. I mean, that, that's the kind of <laughs> feedback I was getting. Yeah, it was, it was a learning experience because I, instead of cash flowing from day one, it took, it was literally two years and it was just eviction after eviction. It was trees falling on the fences. It was, and when, when the tenants would move out, they wouldn't, leave it nice and pretty. They put bleach on the carpet. They'd leave all the junk over there, you know, the couches, broken windows. Yeah. It was just, it was kind of a, and it came down to, it was, it was a management issue, but management issues are always caused by owners. So it was an ownership issue. I didn't have the right team in place to manage those properties because they, they kept talking a big game. They kept saying, Oh yeah, it's, it's just that tenant that, that shouldn't happen again. We'll, we'll do a better job next time. And then it happens again. And they give them so many tries. So I was, I was slow to fire and uh, quick to hire because the next management company came in and I asked them three questions. I was like, what do you think about the property? What do you charge? And when can you start? And then I said, you're hired. And 
I, I got what this, I deserve what, what happened to me with that because that, that didn't last long uh, either. So it was. Wait, just, Sep, I, th- I thought those were the three magic questions. <laughs> <laughs> the negative cash flow, yes. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, got it, got it, got yeah. it. I mean, that, that, that's an amazing first experience. And you're kind of diving into the mean potatoes of, of our episode today, which is kind of talking about property management. But, but really quick, Sep, for you to kind of get into those first, first properties, you mentioned a turnkey provider. What's a turnkey provider? So a turnkey provider is like a flipper, like, like you spoke about earlier, Ray, but it's, it's a flipper that I don't mean to, to sound overly pessimistic about it, but just with my experience, I feel like they overly simplify the process. It's a turnkey provider. It's basically a flipper that has properties and kind of packages real estate as a, a turnkey, easy solution for a passive investor to come along, buy the property, and automatically get cash flow. That's, that's how they present it. The reality is that it's it's not easy. It's not you know it's not something that someone can do totally hands off if they want to be passive. Like if, if because I, I think turnkey properties are still it requires active ownership because the owner has to manage the property manager. It's not like they just give the keys to the management company and you know access the bank account and let them run with it because it'll get costly pretty quickly and painful pretty quickly. But but Sep, I mean that's that's why we're all in real estate to to have passive cash flow. So what do you mean we have to manage the property manager? That's what they're there for. We don't want to have to do anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. So, so tell, tell tell us about the realities of real estate and what passive income is, and do we in fact is that something that we should consider when getting into real estate, knowing that there is going to have to be some work involved. You're going to have to do some oversight. Absolutely, and and I should clarify that it's possible to get to get a good real estate experience, a passive real estate experience, a, a profitable real estate experience when you have a good team and when you have good partners. But when I was doing it, it was by myself and I was just blaming everything the turnkey provider told me. So yeah, it's, I, I think a lot of with, with real estate investing, it's not just about the property. It's not about the real estate, the mistake that I made. It's not about the color of the building. It's not about whether or not it has granite countertops. It's about who's the team that's managing that. Are they in tune with what the right clientele is that we're trying to attract this property. Does is this a property that's going to have granite, or is this a property that's going to have formica? Are we going to put in carpet, or are we going to do ceramic because we know the carpet's only going to last for one turnover? So that's one thing I wish I would have spent a lot more time on is is actually understanding that it is still a business and that it, it still needs a, a good operating team uh, to make it profitable, unless on the actual brick and mortar. Makes sense. And it sounds like there are, there are two ways to kind of get into cash flow in real estate if you're not developing from the ground up. And one is to kind of buy a distressed property and rehab it yourself and then start cash flowing. And the other is to, is to buy a property that's kind of uh, already stabilized and ready to go. And, you know, you can buy one of those from a turnkey provider. So a turnkey provider kind of does the, the first half for you. They, they go in and they buy the property and they rehab it or they, or they may not even do anything to it. They may just have, have gotten a good deal on it. But, you know, the, the, in essence, what they're supposed to provide is they're supposed to provide you in exactly what their title is, a turnkey solution for you to start cash flowing. And it seems as though uh, Sep found a, a turnkey provider and he wanted to start cash flowing from, from stabilized property, from stabilized real estate. Sep, let me ask you about the financing for the, those first two fourplexes. Now, you, you were in a position in which you, were, you, you, had been, you had been in school for several years and you had racked up tons of debt. And again, the reason I like to point this out is because I know there are many listeners in the same situation that have, that have savings, that have uh, you know, money in their 401k, but at the same time, they have debt. So it's kind of hard to figure out if you want to pay off your debt, if you want to start investing in real estate and kind of what first steps you, they should take. So I'm curious to find out how you kind of financially went about buying your first two properties and when you decided to do this. 
Well, and one thing as far as clarifying, and my my debt, it wasn't as bad as compared to like how it is nowadays. I mean, this is this is about ten years ago, so it was. Yeah, I, I'm thankful that it was back then and not not now. But it was it was a lot of it was just a time commitment going into it, focusing all the time in in the school, and then not not necessarily getting getting rewarded for it. But as far as the financing earlier on, I, I, it was just I think it was with was uh, Wells Fargo, so traditional financing, 25% down uh, for both properties. And it was just all my own money. And it, it depleted my savings pretty quickly because I thought it would just be the down payment and then that that would be all that would need it. I, and I thought because there was enough cash flow, I'd have the margin in there to cover any type of hidden expenses. So I didn't underwrite it correctly because I believed exactly what the turnkey provider provided. They underestimated the vacancy. They underestimated the maintenance. They did not include capital expenditures. A lot of things that we look for in apartment buildings or if it's SFR portfolios, you know, just making sure not if a tenant moves out, but when the tenant moves out, that we we have a line item for those types of expenses. So the bank, because it was a residential loan, it was, you know, one of the four units, they didn't even look at that. And commercial commercial banks obviously would have would have had a little more input on it. So it got past the bank size as well. Right. Because it was they were just underwriting me personally as the borrower, not necessarily the asset. So they they didn't know or care if I underwrote it incorrectly or not. Got you. So before we get into, into property management and how to, how to find a good property manager and how to manage your property efficiently, let's move down your path. So you bought those two fourplexes and you know you, you, had, you had trying experiences, but at the end you came out alive and you came out more successful and you came out with more knowledge than you ever thought you would have. Probably real estate invest. I mean, because experience, I mean, you can read all the books in the world. That experience that you got is, is second to none in value. You got tons of experience to take to your next deal. What was your next deal? When'd you do it? So the next deal was uh, in the same market. It was in Phoenix. That was in April 2011. And it was another fourplex and it was with seller financing. So because I I didn't have enough money to go to the bank, actually, I think I did go to the bank and they said, Hey, you just bought these two properties a couple months ago. You can't buy another one. You got to wait a year or two. So so I I literally went and I used a credit card to go fund the down payment. I think it was purchase price was about 125,000 and down payment was like around $12,000. So ended up buying another property and and that one ended up having meth lab in it. So that's, yeah, that's, it's kind of, there's, there's always a a kind of a correlation between like the more, the more problems there are with a property or an operation of of a property or, or piece of real estate, then I, I feel like that's, that's kind of the formula for there's more opportunity in there. Cause if everything's already nice and stable and fully optimized and you know, there's no more value add to it, then it's going to be at a top price because that's, Basically, what it is. I mean, that's, that's what it's worth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, How did you find this property? Remember, I think that was on LoopNet way back when. So. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah, and yeah, it's that, that was before having uh, having good brokers and good broker relationships to be able to send over the off market deals. So, how are you? Uh, and we'll, we'll kind of run through this part really, really quickly. How were you able to acquire seller financing with the property that's on LoopNet? Because I mean, I guess the notion with the property that's on LoopNet, a, it's already been marketed to every single investor in town, and nobody wants it. And then now it's on the internet for everybody to see, and it's been up there. So there are eyeballs all over the world, and there are questions and things like that, and there are different offers probably being made. And you come in and you 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 convince. Apparently, it seems like you convinced the seller to go with uh, what may initially initially seem like one of the most unfavorable terms for the seller to go with. You 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 got the seller to go with that. How were you able to do that? Well, I think it, it kind of came from understanding where their position was. So they bought that property, I believe, thinking that it would be kind of a quick flip, but 
they kind of ran into the same issues that I ran into in my first two properties with, you know, the tenants. It was, they were from California as well. So they were expecting it probably to be nice and easy, but it was, it was a lower income area, some more turnover and, you know, just harder to get a higher deposit to have a tenants uh, have skin in the game. So they, they had lost, uh, my understanding is that they had lost, you know, put more capital into the deal than they would have hoped. So by offering seller financing, it gave them the opportunity to A, sell the property at a higher price in the market, B, be able to recapture through interest, you know, the money that they had already put in there and C, not have to keep worrying about the management because it was, it was a big brain drain for them, them being out of state and not having the interest in go go there locally and uh, take care of it. So, you know, it, it turned out to be a win-win because I was able to kind of get just through the challenges that we had. And when I finally found a good management company and knew how to to manage the management company, we were able to turn that around and it ended up being a really profitable deal. Sep, I want to get on to, to the rest of your deals, but I think that this is a, a good time to kind of get into the property management discussion because how long after your, your first two properties did you buy this property? Four months. Four months. Okay. And was it in the same area? Uh, relatively, about two miles away. Two miles away. Okay, great. Let's kind of get into this. You're you're an expert at at, at hiring property managers because I, I think you've you've been you've been through quite a few. Do you do you know off the top of your head how many property managers you've been through? Yeah, I, I, expert. You mean a failure with all the property managers? <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what we call, that's what we classify as experts. People who who fail at a certain particular whatever for hundreds of times, and that's that's how you get expert status. So yeah. right. <laughs> I, yeah, it's it's been through about yeah. So the fourteen, you know, even though it's been through fourteen property management companies, I I, I feel like I sound like. Like someone who says, yeah, I've been through about six divorces, but, you know, give it a shot, you know, <laughs> but, you know, even having those, that many experiences with the property management companies, I'm a still firm believer in having third party property management. So there's, there's been issues like some, you know, a couple of horror stories where I've been in positions where it's like when we needed the property management company most, they bailed out and we had a choice between do we self-manage this apartment complex or do we hire and, and keep looking for another management company to come on board. And it's, it's not easy. It's not like just taking a car to a mechanic shop and any mechanic can basically fix it. Like it's, you know, it's, it's a business relationship. So let's, let's start with this step. What are some of the, the responsibilities of a property manager or what are some of the responsibilities you'd like a property manager to take care of for you? Gosh, there's a whole, a whole list of it. So we, we run our management companies through an interview process that, I mean, nowadays it, it takes them to, to fill out the questionnaire that we have. It takes them probably about four hours. So, you know, like 70 or 80 questions. It's, it's everything from making sure that they have a, an after hours maintenance team to take care of the tenant and the property if there's ever any type of issue. If they get a, if a pipe burst in the middle of the night, uh, we don't want the tenant to have to wait until 8 a.m. the next morning when the house is three feet in water. You know, we want those, those types of single points of failures to be addressed. We want to have redundancy so that if the director of, of make readies or, or maintenance ends up having to take a leave of absence, someone else can quickly step in. And it's not just like a one man or one woman show. I mean, a lot of it is also finding out what is their, what is their passion? Like what is their identity? I've had some management companies I've interviewed tell me, looks up, we're not looking for problem properties. My response is, well, why are you in property management? I mean, it's, you're, you're there to solve problems, but that particular management company is better off working on a class properties and sending them like a C class or, or even like a B would probably not be a good fit because they just, they would rather have fewer number of properties, fewer phone calls and, and be comfortable than actually going out and solving problems. So kind of just a sample of some of the questions that we ask. 
So, Sep, let's get micro really quick because I know that you're in, into commercial properties now. But early on, you you had you had your fourplexes and you had property managers. And or were you were you applying the same principles with those properties as far as creating redundancies and and having somebody on call during uh, peak times and in, in, in the morning? Were you was was this something that you looked for back then as well? I was not no, and and I learned it the hard way. It cost me because not having those. I mean, we either we either you know, learn it from experience or we have to pay for the, I just said we learn it from experience and have to pay for the lesson or we can pay for the lesson from someone experienced. So there are property managers out there that, and just kind of going through your interview process, you said, you said that, you know, it's about four hours worth of what paperwork? Of uh, just the questions. The, just just the, questions. The, the, yeah. They're not yes or no questions. It takes some time to answer each one. Got you, got you, got you. For, so like for the smaller properties, when, when you would have, when you would interview and have property managers come and see what it is that they would want to be managing, how were you determining prices and how were they determining prices and how did you guys come to a common consensus? So earlier on, because it, I was kind of like a small fish out of their entire portfolio. I mean, if I'm only bringing them one or two units or, or two fourplexes, they're making probably at most $350, $400 a month. And then with the gas that it takes for them to go drive back and forth to the properties, it's not the most profitable transaction. So I didn't really have a whole lot of leverage with the management companies to ask them to, you know, to, to give me a break on, on the management fee or uh, the leasing fee, which, which that was another learning experience. I would, I would ask them for that, thinking that if they can do it cheaper, then I, I could cash flow better. Now I realize that's the kiss of death. I, I want to make sure my property management companies are paid well, that, that it is profitable for them to go lease out a unit, that it's, it's a truly win-win scenario. So, and it's still applicable today. It's, it's harder to get a management company. It's hard to get their attention if, it's, if I'm only bringing like one, one unit or two units to their portfolio. But if, if it's a larger complex or if it's larger portfolio, whatever it be, they'll, you know, it basically makes, makes sense for them. That's amazing, uh, amazing info. So speaking to the fact that it is harder to, to get a good property management team with a smaller property, we have many listeners who are looking to get into their first property who are going to buy their first duplex, triplex, or fourplex, or even single family. What are some, some of the takeaways that you had for your, during your experiences and some advice that you could possibly give to the listeners when, when trying to hire a property manager, knowing that you know, they're going to be that little, that little fish in a big pond and it's going to be hard to, to kind of win over a good property manager? What, what are some things to kind of consider? You hit the nail on the head because you said that it's it's like being a the fish like a small fish in the pond basically. It's I feel like a lot of times when when investors start out and this, this is how it was for me when they start out they think just about the property and they think about how good it looks like right now and how you know how potentially good it could be, and and that's kind of where I feel like a lot of the the pain point a lot of the, the lessons will come from is just thinking too small. So if, if instead they think big, you know, a lot of times they want to just get at least one or two doors under the belt or 10 doors, you know, as, as soon as I get these doors, then I'll go and do syndications or I'll go invest in syndications. I feel like it, it would be smarter for them to, to either partner up with someone who's experienced or invest passively and leverage someone else's systems and leverage someone else's processes. How are they, how is someone experienced who's got, 100 doors, 300 doors, 1,000 doors, how are they interviewing their property management company? Like, why reinvent the wheel? And a lot of times, and I'm sure you would share that with your um, investors, you know, if investors have a question about, you know, the, the process to underwrite a, a deal, you, as far as like sharing that, that type of the guidelines or the spreadsheets uh, to help them out, I think that that's more valuable than just doing 100% of every, of, of every one of the first deals on their own, I think. That, make, that makes a lot of sense. It's one of those things to where, as much as it makes sense, like when I first heard it, I was like, you know, it's, it's like you're saying go big or go home. And when I first heard, you know, how big I could possibly go, 
like I was just like, man, the sky's the limit. Like there's no, there's, there's an infinite amount of resources for you to go as big as you want. You just have to be able to think that big, but not, I should say not everybody's risk tolerance is, uh, is ready for, for that type of appetite. And some of us start off small and some of us, some of us, you know, go, I, I saw this kid on bigger pockets. Like he closed an apartment complex. This is last year. He closed an apartment complex, his first one, and he's retired. Just nice. one. First deal. I, I was just like, wait, this is, you know, he, so he literally, his first deal has set out to, to make enough passive income to retire. And he did that in one deal. It was, I think it was over a hundred units, but it was crazy. But yeah, I mean, just, just being able to expand your mind, knowing that you can do anything that's possible, that the resources out there, you know, if you don't have the money, go and use OPM, other people's money. If you don't have, if you don't have the experience, go and, go and leverage somebody else's experience. Like there's, there's an infinite amount of excuses, but for every one of those excuses, there's a solution. So I'm glad you touched on that. But Seth, I'm still not going to get, let you get away from answering this question we want some of the listeners who are going to buy a duplex triplex and fourplex they want some actionable advice for them to get their property managers and know that know that they're getting good quality managers so how how should they go about doing that what are some resources that you can give them what are some advice what's some advice that you can give them Okay, so we can get we can get down to the specifics. If, if any of the listeners want, you know, copy the questionnaire, you know, I could, I could send it over to you if they want to uh, shoot me an email, sepp.becominvest.com. Be happy to send it over. But I think a lot of the so so for uh, let's say if they're buying one property in a new market, I think minimum they should interview at least three management companies, and with each of those management companies, ask for at least two references. Don't believe anything on Yelp. Don't believe anything on Google reviews because some of the best management companies that we have have like one star ratings or two star ratings on Yelp because sometimes it's a mixture of tenants that are being evicted that should be evicted, leaving bad reviews. Other times it's owners or, or sellers who, who didn't buy the property correctly. They didn't budget for a make ready or they, they brought a bad tenant to begin with and they blame it on the management company. So it, it's kind of like, you know, two two different real estate investors can have very different experiences with the management company. It's, it's all about understanding, do these properties fit within their, their management portfolio? Do you want to, and it, so understanding, and it doesn't matter what size the properties are, but are you bringing in a management company that is successfully managing like one, two, three other properties on the same street or in the same neighborhood that they've been there for a while. They, they understand, they know exactly which school the tenants kids want to go to. Or, so or they, how, how do you find out that information? Do you just straight up ask the property manager? How do you, how do you get to, how do you yeah. uncover some of those things? Yeah. And just to ask them too. I mean, a lot of times you could even just send them the, the zip code, the, the property address and ask them a couple of those questions. How many properties you manage within a one mile, two mile radius. And if they're on the other side of town, I, I wouldn't even bother. And we want to make sure that they, they're already there, that it's, they're not going from like B class to C class, that they're already in C class. If that's what the asset is. That makes, that makes perfect sense. So basically look for a property manager with experience in exactly what t- the type of investment that you're, you're looking to manage, you're looking to have managed. So if you're buying a fourplex and you're going to find, you're going to find a property manager who has nothing but single family experience, or you're going to find a property manager who has nothing but large scale apartment experience, then I, I don't know if that's going to work a, as far as their time for, for the, for their bigger property managers, but also as far as their management style. And also as far as the area, that's another thing, you know, you talk, you, you touched on the area, the property manager needs to be familiar with the area, needs to be familiar with what type of residents, you know, are succumb to that area. So I think that's all great advice, especially all great actionable tips. So if we're able to, you know, get our property and find a great property manager, how do we now in turn manage a property manager? So what's our role and what do we have to do? Okay. That, yeah, that's, I'm glad you asked that. Cause that's, that's the other part of it. Cause you can have a good management company and, and I've had this scenario. There, there was, there was a scenario where I had a property manager fire me, not the other way around. So they fired me as the owner 
the, the asset was not a match for the property management company and the asset was failing. So it was bleeding cash flow. It, it was a, it was a heavy repositioning for multifamily and it's hard when a deal, you know, when a property is bleeding to get a management company's attention because it takes just as much time as say a stabilized property to, I'm sorry, they get paid just as much as like a stabilized property, but you know, the, the reposition property is going to take a lot more time. So finding out basically what it is, like how, how do the, how does the property management company want to be communicated uh, with their owners? So really, really quick. I think you touched on something that's, that's really, really, really pivotal. You know, you said that whether or not they're managing a, a stabilized property or, or a distressed property, they're getting paid the same amount. So maybe that's another thing that we should, we should consider is we should maybe consider trying to align our interests with our property manager's interests. I think that there are lots of partnerships that are formed between investor and property manager in which you know, you have a property manager that is your property manager for all your deals and they may even have an equity stake in your deal. So that way, if a property is being mismanaged or if the numbers aren't coming out right, then it's in the best interest of the property manager to make sure that they fix and correct and rectify the situation. So just to, uh, so I want to touch on that really, really quick because that was a, a great point that you brought up, but go ahead. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I agree with that just to make sure that it, it, it is beneficial for everyone. Cause the last thing that any investor wants is to be able to have a property management company that dreads taking the phone call from uh, from a, a client's tenant or dreads taking the phone call from the client even. Because a lot of times the property could be fine, the tenant could be fine, but if the owner is just treats the property management company like it's a one-way street, like they work for me, or that they got to take my phone call at three in the morning, or, you know, they have to call me back within two hours or whatever it is, just like very, almost like a, like a dictator, then no management company is going to want to deal with that. And it's, it's, it's surprising how often that happens just with my management companies telling me that a lot of the investors with, just, you know, these onesie twosie properties. Again, I was like that too, where and it's a part of this fear. I think, you know, if they're, if there was an extra expense that they weren't expecting or the property didn't cash flow for that particular month, then they start panicking. But understanding exactly what what the management company, what their process is for investor communication is a a weekly call, is a monthly call, is a weekly reports, how are the rent rolls delivered? I mean, you're going to have real-time access with it and and also having just like a, a projection. So instead of being reactive, you know, set, set getting with the property management company, set up like a 12 month projection for these properties based on the property and, and the game plan that the investor has, the management company should be able to say, this is what we expect the income and expenses to, to be for the next 12 months. And then just kind of keep them accountable to that variance without overloading them because they do have other phone calls. They do have their clients to manage. And this one property is not the only property that they're taking care of. Would you suggest finding a newbie property manager or hiring uh, a property manager? I wouldn't. Uh, no, I, I would not. I, I would always, yeah, almost always go with a company that has at least five or 10 employees minimum, uh, unless they've come from a company with, uh, with, that has those types of systems and processes in place. Because if they're going to be making the mistakes on, on our dime. So I'd rather just have you know, the seasoned companies so we don't have to kind of guide them the, through the kind of the basics I love that. And, you know, for, for people who are using the, I mean, people use different routes, you know, to get into investing, whether it's being a realtor or being a property manager, but for people who are using the property management route to get into real estate investing and a statement like that would deter you from, from going that route. Well, you know, again, just like investing, just like anything else, you don't have to start out on your own. You can go, you can go and find and leverage the skills and the resources and the, the name of a big company and you can go work for them for years. And now you, now you have credibility. Now you're, you're associated with something great. 
right? I mean, there are ways, there are ways around everything. So even that statement, like knowing that as real estate investors, we're going to want to work with professionals and people who have experience. There, there are ways to get experience in every field in real estate. And those fields in real estate can maybe be your frontal to investing. So great advice, Seth. So let, let's end the segment with this. Let's, let's talk about your, your worst entrepreneurial experience to date. I want you to take us to that exact moment. Take us to that day, what happened, and walk us through that, that process and tell us what, how you came out on the other end. So it's, it's actually management related, surprise, surprise. We were repositioning a apartment complex and I got a text message from the onsite manager uh, saying, hey, Sep, something happened. You should go to the, the website because this is out of state. And I go to the website and I see that the property's on the news and there was a, a shooting on the property. And unfortunately, one of our tenants was murdered. And this was when I was still working my corporate job. So it wasn't like I can go and just take care of this. I had to ask the boss for permission. I had to go step outside and you know, I have all the, the office politics that you kind of have to navigate when you have those types of issues come up. So this was kind of going on live. I called the manager and then I, I asked what happened. And basically they, they were not able to find the shooter, but there were still tenants on our property and they were scared. And I said, well, are you guys going to go to the property? And they said, no. They said, normally when these types of things happen, you know, they had the media over there. There was all the news vans and the SWAT team and all that. And they're like, they're just going to look for someone to blame. So we normally let them settle and, and you know, we'll go check on them tomorrow. And I, I was literally like begging the manager to, to at least send one of the district managers or, or someone over there. But they were just, and I, understandably, I mean, if, if they hadn't found the killer, then they're, they're afraid of, you know, going there in the first place. But there was police there. That, that was kind of a wake-up call in, in seeing that, because up to that point, the property was fully renovated. We, we spent over, we spent about $400,000 uh, turning every single unit, the exterior, and it was, it was a major reposition getting it from like a D property to like a C plus, but it took one tenant. It took one tenant that we inherited that we didn't, that was still living in the property. It was the only tenant that was still there. You know, it, it was a drug related shooting. So that one tenant sank it from whatever, can, whatever the property looked like, it sunk it down to from you know B to C to, to D instantly. And the learning, the lesson out of it was that that's, that's just, it's, that's how fast it can happen with not having the right team and the right process and the right systems in place and redundancies as well. And what I mean by redundancies is because when I told the management company, I was like, look, you guys have to go there or we can't work with you guys. And I said, that's fine. We'll go, but we're going to put on a 30 day resignation. So that, 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 you know, a lot of lessons in that, but it, I mean, that was, that was like, panic attacks for like six nights because it was something no book had ever talked about. I, I didn't think even that was possible. I thought that was just on the news and in those parts of town, I didn't expect to happen on our properties. So just knowing that always have a backup management company and, um, you know, just make sure that they, they can handle and they be seasoned to handle those types of things and have a procedure just in case something like that or something similar ever happens. Lifestyle design acceleration hacks. What is your favorite Before the Millions book? Type of Three, Conspiracy of the Rich, Equity Happens, Creature from Jekyll Island. So we talked about one in three. Let's talk about Equity Happens. And what's funny What's funny about, I haven't read the book, but I mean, the two names that you mentioned, that's, that was the first time that you and I met. At, it was, was at uh, one of their events there. Anyway, let's hear about the book. <laughs> sure. So the, the, what I like about Equity Happens, they wrote that before the recession and, and the guys, uh, Robin Russ, they're, they're pretty honest in terms of what, you know, they, they got hit pretty hard in the recession. What I like about that book, especially when you're reading Conspiracy of the Rich and Creature from Jekyll Island, it, it talks a lot about, you know, the Fed, inflation, how there's another big crash coming and, you know, how, how 
all the, the market cycles happen, I, I feel like it's kind of like those books can kind of be somewhat depressing, but they're they're necessary. And what I like about Equity Happens is it kind of takes, it, it, it does a good way of formulating real estate investing, apartment buildings, commercial real estate, houses, whatever it be, as a solution to that. And it just gives a lot of interesting facts, even seeing how real estate is performed during market cycles, during inflationary periods, during deflationary periods, and how it's, in my opinion, I mean, just the ultimate asset class. You sure? I thought stocks were better. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on to the next question. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. Dropbox. Dropbox, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> love it, love it, love it. I, I think I think many of the users, uh, many of the listeners know exactly what Dropbox is. So I don't know, I don't know if we should go into too much detail, but um it's a what is it? What do we call it? A file sharing app or a cloud, a cloud? drive yeah and a good way i, I feel like uh, just having instantaneous access to, to data that we need as real estate investors definitely what do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed i, I like that every day it feels like saturday and and i don't say that i'm you know just sleeping in but every day feels like a weekend it doesn't feel like a monday morning it feels like what i was looking forward to during the rat race so freedom of time being able to talk to you on a on a podcast not having to spend time with my you know a grumpy boss or or coworkers you, you don't enjoy working with you get to actually travel and and i feel like work on your calling like to actually do what it is that you're passionate about helping others you know building the business living the dream so Love it, love it, love it. And it sounds like you are living the dream, Sep, so that is amazing. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? One of the sacrifices was getting used to letting go of the good to have the great. So, and, and you know, just saying no more often. I'm, I'm borrowing a lot from Jim Collins with that, but saying no. Uh, just a lot of the distractions that come up uh, just and also uh, this might sound kind of mean but being selective with the people the philosophies the ideas that we surround ourselves with there's you know there's some friends that i have so much fun hanging out with them but it's not it doesn't get me closer to the goals it doesn't help me add more value to the planet it's just you know it's just kind of living living for the night so that that jim Rohn quote you are the average of the, the five people you spend the most time with like that's been like i just keep myself as that reminder it's like all right i'm, I'm worth making the sacrifice to be like those those five people that i look up to that I aspire to that's amazing who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? I'd say the real estate guys, because they got me to think bigger than I originally thought I was capable of. And even to this day, they, they push me. I'm, I'm still extremely shy and introverted. And, and they just keep reminding me that, you know, the shyness doesn't help me serve others. So, and, and it feels a lot better to be uncomfortable and grow and fail and, and get back up than, than just kind of let the weaknesses get in the way. Last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention on getting to the millions? I think that comes down to not having a clear personal mission statement, clear like written down goals and, and focus. Uh, even in real estate investing, it's like there's so many different avenues to go down. It's easy to get distracted. So I think just having that clarity of vision uh, is a big help to kind of overcome those distractions and, and be on target. Love that. Sep, this has been a, a fantastic interview. I want to thank you again so much for your time and your valuable content. We learned a lot about property management, how to find a right, the right property manager for our specific property, for our specific area. 
Amazing, amazing info. We walked through your Before the Million story and we were able to learn some of your thought patterns and how you were able to become this real estate investor that you are today, you know, owning different types of real estate and being, you know, being location independent if you wanted to, being, 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 having the lifestyle that, that you've always wanted, having the lifestyle that you wanted during, during the rat race time. So that's amazing. Thanks for, for sharing that with us. If the listeners kind of want to reach out to you and ask you a few questions or, or learn a little, little bit more about you, where can, where can they do, do that at? Well, I appreciate the way. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to be here. I think the, the easiest way is on our website. It's becominvestmentgroup.com. And my email address is sep at becominvest.com. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Well, there you have it. Sep, again, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Dere. Thank you, Dere.